0: This is exactly right. It takes the time and the patience because they want, A, to be heard and they want to hear. And this is why spoken word is so important um, and has been for millennia. And that's not going away. There's good, there's bad. It doesn't really matter. Storytelling, that connection um, works brilliantly at any age.
1: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Audiobook Break with Winnie the Pooh and Barbara Rosenblatt. London-born, New York City-bred, Barbara is a creative artist who carries performance credits from the US to the UK, from Broadway to London's West End, and from network television to Netflix and beyond. A legend in audiobooks for her extraordinary range and award-winning performances, having recorded over 500 audiobooks, Barbara has been described as having a gift that, quote, is to audiobooks what Meryl Streep is to film. Although she is best known as a prolific narrator of audiobooks, earning Audiophile Magazine's Golden Voice Lifetime Achievement recognition, Barbara is also beloved for her SAG Award-winning role as Miss Rosa in the Netflix original series, Orange is the New Black. Other TV credits include House of Cards, Homeland, Gotham, and most recently, in 2022, Better Call Saul as Judge Samantha Small in the series finale. Finally, Barbara is the narrator of the award-winning audiobook, Winnie the Pooh, and the book is now a new podcast from Audiophile Magazine and on the show, Audiobook Break. We're going to be talking about all of that and more. Barbara, welcome to the show. Dr. Dan, what a pleasure. Hello. The the pleasure is all mine. I'm excited to be listening to directly to this voice and looking at you at the same time, as I've done a lot of looking and listening without the engagement over the years. So this is a real, real treat for me.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, I, I get to do so many interesting things in my life. I'm extremely lucky. So getting to share a little bit of it with you today is um, quite
1: the thing. Thank you. So I would like us to start with your path, your creative path, and what led you to performance of all types, and and did you know this is where you were going when it was all happening?
0: I think my mother felt I was her greatest production, so I came out <laughs> swinging,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: but of course, the path toward creativity is always riddled with stones. But, you know, when you have a passion of some sort uh, that starts to emerge early, um, nothing gets in the way, even though you're probably not mature enough to enjoy it or do something with it at an early age.
1: Did you come from a creative family?
0: Uh, yes I did actually uh in a way uh i have a um a, a great uncle who was a chazan, which uh, is Hebrew for cantor and and he was in the first talkie the jazz mm. singer mm. wow with, uh, uh The star of the jazz singer that was Uh, Neil Diamond?
1: No, the original, 1927. (laughs) I'm going, I'm sorry, I'm going with my jazz singer. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Al Jolson. Al Jolson.
1: Of course, Al Jolson. Yes.
0: He's torn between uh, deciding whether to become a cantor, um, like that his father wants him to be, and going into show business. Um, And he goes to the synagogue to watch. Um, to watch the cantor sing. uh, And that's Yossela Rosenblatt. Uh, So we're kind of proud of that, actually. And I went to Hebrew school when I first came to this country. My brother and I were sent to a yeshiva for the first eight years of our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was in the choir all those years, singing all kinds of great Hebrew songs. And... But I would also try desperately to lead the prayers in the morning in mm. Hebrew because I was such a darn show-off. Uh, it was an opportunity to sing, uh, even if it was cantorials.
1: A young cantor emerges.
0: Correct. And the word for chazan for a girl is chazanah. And I would always get little notes from my teachers and my rabbis to send home to mom saying... Bracha, which is my Hebrew name, Bracha was delightful this morning in her in the prayers as Chazanah, and I thought, oh, showbiz, oh yes, oh mm. yes, <laughs> and of course I was seven.
1: Yes, yes. So you were, uh, you were taking a lead role early on. It, it, it just, it just naturally came to you, or uh, you sought it in both directions. I'm guessing.
0: My father and my mother, uh, who met. Post war in Europe. Um, They both were wonderfully expressive people. My mother sang to the troops in the British Army. Mm. My dad sang opera, played the cello. He was a dentist. Um, And he was, I mean, they were always encouraging us to flower. Uh, culturally. I mean, there was always music in the house, and they were always Mm -hmm. singing at each other because they were little lovebirds and were hugging all the time. And that's a wonderful example to to show your kids,
1: you know, Mm -hmm. just
0: how huggy you are.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you had encouragement. You had a lot of creative performance, not only encouragement, but it was part of the family culture, it seems.
0: It was. We were also... Unbelievably silly
1: because
0: um, <laughs> you have to you have to sort of take it in context. My parents met they'd both lost tons of family in the holocaust mm-hmm. and uh, and they met post war and in London and uh were engaged like within two weeks mm. of each other uh, and we all came on a big ship to this country. Uh, after they got engaged, they got married, they had my brother, they had me, and then we showed up here. um, And they they needed to recreate a full family life, family existence. So that love that they had for each other, that just poured over both of us. And it got to the point where on a Sunday... (laughs) Um, the New York Times, which we always read cover to cover, um, in the living room, my mother would make this huge brunch. You know, out come the bagels and the smoked salmon and the whitefish and cup the of tea and, and the kugel, the, all of that good stuff. And um, and we'd sit around the living room uh, with the paper all over the place. and My brothers cutting out pictures of rockets, and I'm trying to find the Ninas in the uh, in the Hirschfeld. Uh, caricatures in the theater section, and my dad's reading the news, and my mother's making more tea. Um, And something would all of a sudden, I don't know, set somebody off as humorous. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else would start laughing, and then I would. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we were a mountain of hysterics for about half an hour, having forgotten what the heck it was that was so funny, and we would be this massive, damp, Jewish, you know, cluster mm-hmm. <laughs> of hysterical people. Mm. And that's how I grew up. I grew up in a household like that, full of emotion, full of music, full of chat.
1: That's wonderful. And, um, you know, I think about all the loss and the trauma that your parents went through from the Holocaust. And I know from the research and um tribal cultures, um, singing and dance is one of the most healing activities um, when people are coming back from war and have tremendous loss. And not that necessarily that was a intentional thing from your parents, but um, it seems along with their love for one another, seems to have some healing properties.
0: Absolutely. Of course it did. Because I think the point was to keep going, Mm -hmm. to keep moving with whatever you have, build on it. Mm -hmm. And because there was so much loss at the end of that war and so many new beginnings, they had to take whatever there was, uh, like the few seeds that somebody threw them, you know, like a tree grows in Brooklyn, Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find a crack in the ground and you'll toss those few seeds in and you will water it faithfully and at some point, it will grow. That's what we had, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And my parents worked so hard for both of us, uh, my brother and I, to, um, to become independent people without the, the horrifying needs that our forebears endured.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you, uh, you, you go from London to New York, and then mm-hmm. you go at some point. You go back to London to say, you know what? I've got dual citizenship here. I'm gonna I'm gonna check this out. I'm gonna make a go at this.
0: Well, yeah, I I did. I was invited to a wedding, not mine, but I lived in hope. And <laughs> uh, I'd already done summer stock and uh, a little dinner theater, non union, and I taught for ten minutes until I got. Board of Education, Mm -hmm. and uh, decided, let me go to this wedding. And I went to the wedding, and here I am in London. And I thought, yeah, I could work here if I wanted to. Um, And at that point, um, I was visiting Israel for the first time. I have a lot of family in France, and I was visiting them too. And I went back to London and thought, you know what? Let me give this a shot. I looked for a little job. Um, on Lower Regent Street in the West End, and um, took my return ticket, went back to mom, and said, "You know, I think I left home. Um, <laughs> not sure, but I think I did because I'm going back to London. Um, and I had this little job, and then I got cast in a tour of Godspell. Hmm. Um, remember that musical? Yes. And uh, and it was, the, it was for the second national tour. Uh, and I thought this is the way to get my union card, my British Actors' Equity card, the first union I ever joined. I was very lucky in that I, from the job, the little job that I had, I called up the fellow at Equity and I said, hi, I'm American, but I'm English and I'm a dual national and I want to pursue some theater here can you help me figure out a way to get into the union? Because there's only one union in, in England, and it covers everything, film, theater, audiobooks, the lot. Um, and he said, well, we can probably get you in via v- the variety end. I said, variety? Oh, you mean like music hall and panto and that kind of thing? He said, yeah. He said, if you get a job like out of town um, and it makes its way to the West End, it'll be a union job, and then you'll get a full ride when you get to uh, the West End. And I thought, oh, okay. And I auditioned for Godspell. Got it. We toured around the regions for six months. Boy, that was an eye-opener. And, um, and then got back to the West End for a limited run for three months. And booyah, I was in the union with a full ride.
1: There Amazing. you go. There you go. And... And then the transition to voice only. How Did, w- did you ever see yourself going in that, on that path?
0: I have always enjoyed the spoken word. To me, being well-spoken seemed the most important aspect of someone's initial presentation. So, for example... In third grade, in Mrs. Askew's class in mm-hmm. at Yeshiva when I'm uh, nine, um, I sat there. She was social studies. I sat there, and she would call on various people to lift up those really heavy textbooks on social studies when I was a kid. Remember those? Mm-hmm. And, and they had big illustrations in them and whatever. And she said, Barbara, get up and read about Douglas fir trees. <laughs> okay. So I turned to the page and I got up and I started reading this really dry material about Douglas fir trees. And it was about, I would say, I would say two minutes worth of reading, which is a long time if you think about it. Mm -hmm. And by the time I picked my eyes up from the book, everybody was staring at me. And it was—you could hear a pin drop. In I was nine. You Dan. were performing.
1: You were performing. I was
0: nine, <laughs> and thus I discovered show business.
1: Wow, wow. Yes, a natural. Um, well, your voice. Well, there's this voice that um, we many of us know, and then there are all of the other voices, intonations, and accents through all of these books and. You know you so I, I wrote down this quote that I heard you say in an interview that was just beautiful. Um, you said, like a concert pianist, I don't compose the music, I interpret it. What is that process like for you? I am a creative channeler,
0: so to speak. so uh, as whenever I've done master classes about audiobook book work and how to record and, and such over the years. I mean, I don't, I don't do it very much anymore, but when I have, uh, and I take no prisoners, I'll tell you that. <laughs>
1: um,
0: I would say to them, you know, it seems like lonely work, but it isn't, you know, because the author is always there with you. And if you get into that author while you're prepping the book, because you cannot just walk in there, and start reading, some folks think they do, but you Mm can't, then you're not alone if you understand the path of the author. What you then do is you bring those audio skills to the written word to essentially lift it off the page.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and all of Elizabeth Peter's books that you narrated, you became close friends, from what I hear. And she, so she truly was with you the more and more you worked together and the words that you read. I was doing a, a Broadway
0: show when I started her series. Um, and Elizabeth Peters wrote this magnificent series that involved a young um, woman in England in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, Amelia Peabody. And she's looking after her dad. She uh, is not married, but she has this love of Egyptology and archaeology and a sense of mystery. I mean, she's a fabulous woman, but she's, you know, looking after Pop. And when Pop dies, he leaves her an awful lot of money. And now she's able to follow her bliss and go off to Egypt on these wonderful adventures. where she meets the love of her life, Radcliffe Emerson, the greatest archaeologist of this sort any age, <laughs> and um, and twenty or so books later, she's a grandma mm. with kids who have their own kids, and uh, and so I I was doing the Secret Garden on Broadway, um, and we won a few Tonys, which was nice and. Elizabeth Peters was always afraid to listen to any audiobook rendition of anything because it was just not the th- kind of thing she did, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of her author buddies said, yes, yes, but it's Barbara Rosenblatt. You should, you know, listen. She's recorded your, the first two books. You should listen. And uh, um, so she listens to the book, and now she wants to meet me. So... um she sent me this wonderful letter, um, having been coerced into listening, uh, and she brought two of her editors with me backstage on a Saturday afternoon after a matinee. And it's like we we fell on each other like we were old lost cousins
1: because
0: mm-hmm. um, <laughs> we're both gin girls, you know, we mm-hmm. like a good cocktail. Nice. Uh, and she was just this fabulous, fabulous woman who in about 20 years became not just a very dear friend who and colleague who trusted me to fix things in her englishness because this is a woman from uh from maryland who created this uh <laughs> mm-hmm. uh this series and she's also an accomplished well-known um uh, egyptologist who has written as dr barbara mertz for years Uh, we became great, great friends. She trusted me to help fix things. And I'll give you an example of something I would fix. She would say in a passage, um, the husband, um, uh, Radcliffe Emerson, would say, Amelia, Amelia, we've 24 minutes to get to Luxor and make it to the railroad station for our trip. And... I would call her up and say, hey, you can't say railroad station. No. (laughs) It's it's railway. Yeah. You railroad somebody into doing something, but it's railway. (laughs) And she would always say, oh, thank you, Barb. That's great. Thank you. Yes, good. So those were the little fixes that Mm -hmm. I brought into these things. And she loved all my my characters and uh, characterizations. And so... When she started listening to all the stuff as each subsequent book came out, she would start to throw interesting dialects in there into meetings or dinner parties or uh, exchanges just to give me some fun. Ah, and
1: nice.
0: And the more, the more complicated, the happier I was. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of the day, I... I uh, uh, Visited her home, stayed for the weekend. We would chat, we would schmooze. We we lost her some years ago, uh, sadly, and it was a real wrench. That I, a week doesn't go by that I don't think about her. Mm. And yesterday, I had a very long chat with her daughter, um, uh, who invited me in the spring to go down to Malice Domestic, which is a uh, it's a big convention of cozy writers, um, mm. and I've. Uh, done personal appearances there before, and that's where all these cozy writers... And if you don't know, a cozy is a novel where, like Agatha Christie, lots of bodies and not very, not very much blood. Mm. Um, and they're fun. And they, I've done mm-hmm. tons of them over the years. And she wanted me to come down, and uh, they wanted to do a little something for uh, Elizabeth Peters and would I, you know, come along and play. And I thought, ooh, that'll be great fun. But that's not till April. Uh, and she's still wonderfully thought of, and it's a, it's a terrific series.
1: Winnie the Pooh. How does Winnie the Pooh come into your life? I never read
0: Winnie the Pooh as a child. Mm-hmm. Never. I was um I was exposed to it only in its Disney incarnation
1: mm-hmm.
0: um with the red jacketed bear. Um in fact I just came back from Disney World <laughs> <laughs> with a bunch of friends uh last month. We had the most wonderful time and then we went down to uh um the magic kingdom and I uh of course did the Winnie the Pooh ride and you have to guess.
1: you have to do that
0: yes oh absolutely gave me a uh, uh, got for me a pooh bear which <laughs> I now proudly display next to the audiobook how did I get to Winnie the Pooh well there is a Canadian company called uh, voices in the Wind and uh, David Farquhar is the uh, owner producer and I've done various Productions with him uh, under the direction of a spectacular audio uh, director, George Czar. Um, and we've done The Secret Garden, that was last year, and we've done Sleeping Beauty and some original materials. And they came to me with Winnie the Pooh and said, Would you like to record Winnie the Pooh? And I thought, Winnie the Pooh! Wow! I'm not familiar with Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. I know he eats honey. Um, and that was it. Uh, because as you grow up, you start hearing about the the Tao of Pooh. Yes,
1: think, the Tao of Pooh, yes.
0: But I didn't know what that was, and it wasn't important mm-hmm. to me. And I thought, well, I'm going to be recording this, so it's important to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to read it. Uh, and I didn't quite understand the zen of this thing. Um, and George, George Czar, who is a magnificent collaborator in all things audio, he said, we're just going to work this slowly. And I wanted my, my principal goal in the recording was to keep it placed firmly between the two world wars. Mm-hmm. Um, because A.A. A. Milne um, wrote this for his child. Uh, this was a very interesting time in, in great Britain. Uh, and that gentle storytelling, uh, and the empowerment of your own child, uh, through a book, which I think is the Zen mm-hmm. of Winnie the Pooh, um, is what makes it so special. And it's where I wanted to keep recording so that as these little pearls of wisdom and humor, um, and comfort start to, uh, make themselves known, uh, you are encouraged to keep reading and keep those stories close to your heart.
1: Mm -hmm. The Zen, well, the, the, the Tao of Pooh, of course, is another, um, a, a work pl- pl- played off of Pooh and his wisdom. What have you come to understand as you now have lived and created these characters through your voice? What, what is the zen of Pooh to you at this point?
0: I noticed that the entire book is a father engaging with his child. But he allows the child, Christopher Robin, to inform how A.A. A. Milne moves through his storytelling so that when Christopher Robin suggests something, I mean, did I have that balloon? Was I stuck in the hole in this? You know, he said, well, perhaps. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he's engaging the child and empowering the child to make a story that, where the child finds the logic that perhaps the dad isn't up to yet. Mm-hmm. And when the dad hears it, thinks, oh, yes, of course. Of course it has a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And you helped me reach that happy ending. And I thought that was the best aspect of the writing that, Basically, it was allowing a child who might be frightened at the prospect of one of the incidents that happen um in Winnie the Pooh, and yet he is comforted by his dad's urging to move the story forward and then giving him uh the okay mm-hmm. that this can happen next and therefore no. You won't be frightened; you'll be empowered.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I have, love that. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. And I, I have read. You know, there's many ideas about how this book came to be, but one of the primary ones is that um, he was recovering and processing his own trauma from the war, and wanting to not only work that through, but empower his son as you were saying, to not be afraid and to be resilient and, um, to have, you know, a, a, a wonderful, creative life with possibility.
0: Right. Because when you, when you see at the beginning, he's talking about dragging his bear behind him, bump, bump, bump all the way down the stairs. So this inanimate object, um, I think it it felt almost as though Christopher Robin was giving dad permission to actualize Winnie uh, Mm -hmm. because they were so close. And um, anthropomorphize, is that the word? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's okay because he never lets go of that bear. Mm -hmm. That bear is always with him. Um, And so there there the root is stuck in the ground mm-hmm. and there's the anchor for dad to widen that world and invite um his son to expand his own universe but with characters that he's already familiar with and comfortable with and takes some kind of sucker from mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and if you go to the new york public library those very those very toys, Kanga, Roo, Winnie, um, Eeyore, they're all on display for the world to see, the original stuffed animals uh, Mm -hmm. that were the basis of the book.
1: Mm -hmm. I, like you, um, I was, well, maybe even a little more exposed than you, but not much. I mean, I knew Winnie the Pooh. I think I tried reading a book, and of course, I went to Disneyland and went on the Pooh ride and watched the Disney stuff. But it wasn't until um, my wife's family that I really, so in, in their family, like Pooh is part of the, Winnie the Pooh is part of the culture. Um, Pooh is, is quoted um, at times of laughter, of times of mourning. Um, excerpts are read. Um, there's laughter. And I started to see it from this other vantage point through her family and of course with our kids about how, these characters come to life in such a um, well, in such a real way and representation of so many different aspects of being human. You know, where we have Eeyore, who's always in the dumps, and then you got we got and Rue, and we have Owl, and of course Tigger, who's going to knock you over and kiss your face and not read any. Body signals, uh, social signals. What, what? Do you have a favorite?
0: Oh, you betcha! And he turned up last night.
1: <laughs> he did. Uh,
0: well, I was invited to a trivia night. That's very big in New York City, and mm-hmm. there, uh, there's a, a bar on the Lower East Side that a friend of mine owns. And he texts me and says, "Oh, we're doing trivia Tuesday night." wanna come? And so I did. Uh, And it's like a three-part
1: trivia, which is great for the brain. With a martini, I'm imagining.
0: Oh, well, actually, in that case, it was a um, bourbon Manhattan, which I rather enjoy. Um, And um, it's usually done in three parts. There's pictures, there's sound, there's all kinds of stuff. And then in part three, all of a sudden, Um, The question was something to the effect of, in Winnie the Pooh, one character says, uh, (laughs) it's it's a lovely morning, or perhaps it isn't. Mm -hmm. Something like that. What character is that? And of course, it's Eeyore!
1: Of course it is.
0: he's my favorite, because I decided to turn him into, into just a... An, a Cornish uh, ne'er do well hmm. uh, who's always complaining about this, that, and the other. Um, and Cornish is a is a favorite dialect to do. I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a dialectician by trade. Hmm. Um, so whenever I get an opportunity to to use one, it's exciting for me. Um, and I thought because I know Cornwall and I've been down there, it's on the south coast of England. Uh, where the clotted cream and the pasties come from, who <laughs> are um it 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 just fit, you know, I didn't have to see a picture of him, but there he was, loping along with his head always down,
1: and I thought, yep. oh
0: yeah, let's all right
1: give give us now. a little Eor. give give us a little uh with that uh accent,
0: let's see uh, oh here we go, Eeyore's tail is um. Stuck in the water.
1: There's always um, something going on with that tail.
0: And he's getting very chilly. And Eeyore was sitting with his tail in the water when they all got back to him. Tell Ru to be quick, somebody, he said. My tail's getting cold. I don't want to mention it. But I just mention it. I don't want to complain, but there it is. My tail's
1: cold. Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> it is about the interpretation. It's such yeah. in the interpretation because Eeyore I I, I experienced him differently. Hearing him there than I have in the past. It it brings a whole new element. So, have you learned from the wisdom of Pooh through your experience of recording? I think when I when
0: I'm with kids, um, yes, because I I find that when you invite kids to offer of themselves when you're with them. Like I was as a child. It takes so long to remember this stuff, and you have to grow up and understand it. But when you allow kids um, to offer of themselves in a creative way without putting up a guardrail or saying, well, what do you think? Well, but how about this? Because this would be more efficient kids aren't at your level. They're at their level. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that, it's easier to move forward. So yeah, Um, like my nieces and nephews, you know, they're little. You let them, you let them offer up whatever it is they have and just embrace it. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned.
1: And just like the author. Right, it's just, it's just as you described earlier, yeah. as the author did for Christopher Robin. Um, right. To meet them it's where they are. So,
0: it's like A.A. A. Milne was telling the world, yes, I've written this book, but I'm going to let my son tell the story, and I'm just going to urge him along mm-hmm. uh, as we go. And he urges him along throughout the entire book, because if you'll notice, they're stories and they're cut up by chapters, but he's never not talking to Christopher Robin about mm-hmm. all of it. Mm-hmm and and that's the magic of this of this Winnie the Pooh it's a, it's a very different concept of of writing and i enjoyed it enormously
1: well and i think the it's the metaphor for parenting or nurturing or teaching or mentoring yeah others is this idea and particularly of the creative mind um for for those out there who are nurturing and raising create creative kids well first of all most kids are creative and then up to a certain point it unfortunately gets a little bit knocked out of them in school um, when you have that creative spirit it goes in a lot of different directions it's can be quite messy literally and figuratively and it often is highly divergent and maybe not even reality based for those of people who think in more rational terms and yet the challenge is, is to guide and allow your child or your student to evolve with you l- guiding them without necessarily knowing where the outcome is going to leave.
0: Or not allowing a possible outcome that is in your head
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, impact how you help Shuttle along the child, because yes, what you what you think the aftermath might be might be nothing even relatable to yes. that young child. Can I ask you a question? Yes. So you have a couple of kids. Three kids. Three kids. Okay. What was the? Because we all read to kids, right? Mm-hmm. When you were a young dad with the first kid,
1: mm-hmm.
0: did you find that your approach to reading to them? changed from kid to kid after they were born did new things occur to you as to how to approach them as a young dad uh
1: yes i would say in in a a few different ways um with one child i felt i had a lot more time than with three reading stories and for bedtime and also i was new to reading stories As the stories mounted, and we were a big story reading, um, it's a ritual in our family, as the stories mounted and I became more familiar with the ones that I had read and also more excited to read new stories, I definitely recall getting more involved in the stories and in many cases, being just as excited or more excited at times to read the next book or the next chapter to my kids.
0: Well what What do you think was more important to them? The sound of your voice, the actual thing you were reading, or just the time you took with them?
1: Mm, I would um, in hindsight, the last the time was probably the most precious if I had to choose one
0: because at the end of the day it doesn 't really matter it doesn 't really matter. Good answer, Dr. Dan. Um, It takes it takes the time and the patience because they want a to be heard and they want to hear. And Mm -hmm. this is why spoken word is so important um, Mm -hmm. and has Mm -hmm. been for millennia. And that's not going away. There's good. There's bad. It doesn't really matter. Storytelling that connection um, Mm -hmm. works brilliantly
1: at any age. And the power of listening, which you are getting at, right? So, there's so say a little bit about you know, there's 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 talking and then there's listening. What is your take on each of those? Listening
0: and hearing are very different things. Mm -hmm. Um, My hearing, which is now helped by science. Um uh I have spent my life learning how to listen. Uh and it's taken me a long time to get out of my own way. Just shut up and listen Rosenblatt with mm-hmm. one T by
1: mm-hmm. the way. One T people. Um
0: yeah. Well, I come from poor immigrant stock, we could only afford the one. Um but learning how to listen really really listen um, allows you at least to formulate more intelligent responses to most of the world out there and it's funny, even at the bank um, or or a hospital setting I'll give you an example i was at I was at um i think I was going going to get my mammogram, as one should do every year. Yes. Uh, I went for my mammogram, and I get to the ground floor, and I'm just about to go to the radiology department. Um, thankfully, everything's fine, just in case you guys want to. Thank um, you. And somebody came out of the um, environmental office, which means, you know, the cleaning staff, and uh, <laughs> and it was a tall, handsome fellow with his, you know, hospital cleaning staff garb on, And he watched someone cross his path, someone obviously that he knew, uh, and said, uh, ah, did you hear that? And she went, what? Did you hear that squeak on the floor? She went, yeah. She said, that shows you it's clean. That's a clean floor. That is a clean floor. And I thought, a man proud, proud of his work. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
0: stopped everything. I just said, I so enjoyed this moment, I can't tell you, just to hear you um, talk about the quality of your efforts this morning. And he beamed, mm-hmm. beamed at me. And this was a small, lovely New York moment. And because you listen and you hear as a result, um, you you enrich So many moments that you might just like skate over Mm -hmm. that are worth stopping and
1: smelling the coffee for. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So in, in continuing this idea of listening, we have podcasts, which we are doing right now. We have audiobooks, which you have done many, many of. And now... You are on a podcast audiobook, an audiobook podcast. Tell so how do you, how would you describe the merging of those and how the experience might be different than either of the uh, each alone? Charles Dickens,
0: as I recall, before his massive, wonderful oeuvre was available to the world, wrote uh, in serialized form in London magazines, and people would read various chapters um, until the book was completed, and then the book was published. Um, This is not unlike that, in that the book and the wise folk at Audiophile Magazine uh, uh, decided that they could um, cut it in such a way that children could enjoy, and adults as well, uh, chunks of it at leisure, Mm. um, rather than just sitting and binging the whole thing. Um, And I thought that was a pretty smart idea. I hadn't thought of it, but uh, Robin Witten, who is the editor um, and owner-publisher of Audiophile Magazine and... By the way, I've known her since she was a pamphlet. Hmm. Uh, and it it was a great idea and and hopefully it will uh, widen the audience for Winnie yes. uh, if it isn't wide enough already, but I really I'm just so delighted with the whole recording of it. Um, I was very sad to turn the last page. I bet. Um, it was such a joy. it really, really was.
1: And I listened to a few. So everyone out there who is who are going to find this, um, it is wonderful, bite size, maybe like twenty two minutes. You know, it's just it's like it just gives you a, enough to get engaged, then transition to something else, and to look forward to to the next one. So um, could be
0: the space of time you spend reading to your child before they right. turn off their uh, the light.
1: Yes, Barbara. It's time for the parent footprint moment question. Ooh. Are you ready? I'm ready, Dr. Death. Oh, here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself, either as an individual, a parent, or an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, children, and or those you love. I had an awful
0: lot of family from Europe that I grew up with in New York City. Aunts, uncles, cousins, and we all schmoozed together. Everybody cooked in everybody else's homes. There was always the holidays when we were kids. Um, And as I told you, we all enjoyed each other's company. Of course, there was lots of yelling and screaming, mostly in Yiddish and Polish Mm -hmm. and German, uh, which I think... um, Impacted everything about me mm-hmm. uh, from the get go, uh, and I remember one uh, particular day, uh, and this this harkens back to that uh, Douglas first story I told you <laughs> earlier, mm-hmm. um, where we were visiting our cousins in Queens for I don't know dinner. I think I was eight. Uh, and my uncle was a wonderful painter, a brilliant, brilliant painter, uh, modern artists. Um, and they'd met like my folks did after the war, had kids, came to this country trying to make a new life. So there we were and my uncle David hadn't gotten home yet and, uh, so we schmoozed around, talked to the women in the kitchen who were busy cooking, and we're setting tables and whatever. Then the door opens up, and in walks Uncle David. And Uncle David is carrying um, a metal suitcase, you know, the kind that would hide an Uzi <laughs> if yeah. uh, somebody was climbing up to a roof, and opens mm-hmm. it up, and right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... I had no idea what this was, and he looked at me and said "Kesela," which is a nice little Yiddish um, term for cuteness. He said, Ketzele, come with me. Let me show you." I said, "What? What? What is that, Uncle David?" Come, come to the bedroom. I show you my daughter. And he takes this this case, and he opens it up on the bed, and he says, "You know what this is?" I said, "No." It's a tape recorder. What? Um, and he puts a piece of tape in, and he winds it through that endless looping of the mm-hmm. stuff. Remember the old days? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tape. <laughs> <clears throat> and he pulls out this silver thing on a cord, which was the microphone, and um, plugs it into the side, plugs the box, the whole unit, into the wall and there was a vu meter in the middle um which when it turned on it went mmm. <laughs> and i thought huh? what's that and then he turns a little button on and says talk my dear. talk talk say something my dear. and i held this thing in my hand and i said H- hello i'm barbara and i'm with uncle david and and Auntie Sarah, and we're having we're having dinner later. And then he turned it off, pushed a little button that went <laughs> turned the button back on, and there I was live yeah. and in my head in color mm-hmm. for the first time ever hearing my own voice in playback. Th- It was almost as though someone took a a, a rod and placed it on my back and strapped it to me saying, you do realize this is where your future lies. (laughs) And I was nine. Yeah. My life has never been the same.
1: Wow. A loving family, Uncle David, um... Lots of nurturing of mm-hmm. your 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 talents and passions and um, wow! Look at what has come of them all and you and so, I can cook yeah, too. Yeah,
0: give me a <laughs> clove of garlic, I can work miracles. But ask me to turn something on and make it work, techno zombie.
1: Barbara thank you for joining me and us today and uh as i said to be able to um to interact with you and um your beautiful voice and voices is, is has just been uh, really special uh so thank you for sharing your your wisdom and your poo wisdom with us today
0: this has been a big treat for me Dr. Dan and uh i love the work that you do you right a- calming thoughtful influence for so many. Thank you. Wow, thank you.
1: Tell everyone where they can find the audio the this audiobook of poo and also all of your works.
0: Uh, well, if you google uh, Barbara Rosenblatt you can find a heck of a lot of my uh, what is it? It's well over six hundred titles
1: now. Oh I said the- five hundred. Six hundred.
0: Wow. Well, it's more than that probably yeah. by now, but uh, I've I've recorded a ton in every different genre. You can go to Amazon, you can go to you can go to Barnes and Noble, recordedbooks.com. dot com. I also have a website, barbarosenblatt.com, where you can come say hi. Um, and on Twitter and, and the, the usual socials, but audiobook break, I think, is available through Amazon and through Audiophile Magazine. And if you just put it into your search, you sh- it should come right up. And wherever you find podcasts,
1: yes, wherever they are, like yours, yes, they're near each other, I'm guessing, in space somewhere. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This was so fun, and uh, for those of you listening, you have some Winnie the Pooh to listen to in many different dialects and characters, and you will now now have the behind the scenes with Barbara, and you can picture each of those characters in a whole new and affirming way. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Please share this episode with everyone you think will benefit. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become. And ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.